Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we inevitably end up saying thirsty shit about handsome zombies. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. Now in our fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror movies in depth, reminiscing about our questionable teenage decisions and exploring why teenagers and especially teenage girls make some of the most compelling protagonists and villains of the genre. In this episode, we're delving into weird girl horror excision. It gets a bit wild, it gets very gross, but we round it all off with the surprisingly wholesome zombie romantic comedy Warm Bodies, directed by Jonathan Levine, whose debut feature All the Boys Love Mandy Lane we discussed only a few episodes ago. Joining me for this gooey double bill is the Freudian cinephile and podcaster Mary Wilde. A quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work and get occasional bonus episodes and treats. The latest one we've just put up is an in-depth spoilerific review of Titan, which is now widely available on streaming as it's just landed on movies. So if you haven't seen my favorite film of last year yet, it is there's no excuse now. If you can't support us over on Patreon, that's absolutely no problem, but I'd so appreciate it if you take a little time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And on that note, I just want to thank every single one of you who's left a review, especially the lovely the lovely person, the father to a teenage daughter who left such an utterly earnest and sincere, who left such an utterly beautiful review. It really made my day and I thank you for it. But enough earnestness, we are here to talk about horror films and to talk about gross horror films specifically. I'm sensing a theme that's been running through the last couple of episodes. If you're new to the show, please keep in mind that we talk spoilers pretty much from the very beginning. And with all that said, please enjoy our deep dive into excision and warm bodies. Mary, welcome back, and thank you so much for picking this double bill of bodily romance, gross, coming-of-age films? Is that a (laughs) subgenre? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it should be. I feel like it should be, like, the the subgenre of the abject in young people's bodies. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) the teen abject subgenre? Exactly. So there's teen slasher films, which we're all familiar with, which we loved Mm -hmm. from the 90s. And then there's a teen abject, which is the kind of the more grossy body horror teen films. Okay. Yeah. I dig it. I can see it. (laughs) It's like the Julia Kristeva film club today. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting highbrow before we go low, lowbrow in in this conversation. (laughs) Um, so mary before we start digging into the two films we're going to be talking about today excision Mm. and warm bodies i just wanted to ask you kind of what drew you to picking this particular double bill because um Mm. listeners might know i kind of sent out a list to the the regular guests and kind of let people pick the films that they wanted to to talk about um and i was wondering what drew you to excision and warm bodies 
Well, first, I just wanted to say off the bat, I'm so happy to be back. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Always a pleasure. Um, and um, I guess with these two films, because um, first of all, it was very difficult picking off your list because you really chose the best of the best. It, it wasn't an easy decision, but I did feel quite drawn to Excision and Warm Bodies because um, I'm like a big believer in the horror genre and especially the subgenres that we're seeing in, in, in here, you know, like uh, surgery, horror and mm-hmm. zombie stuff when it's especially like manifested on the body, mm-hmm. but as like an indication of a psychological pathology, you know, mm-hmm. that somehow the characters are really suffering from something that is like emotional or mental there could be like a serious diagnosis or it could just be like a much milder case of mental illness. But nevertheless, in both instances, the symptomology is written on the body. And I feel like in these two films, especially, we're seeing that, mm-hmm. but in very different ways. Okay, so there's going to be a ton to unpick there. And shall we go chronologically and start with Excision from yes. 2012? Before we start digging into it, can you summarize the the plot, the story of Excision for me, please? Sure thing. So Excision is um, about an outcast teenager played by Annalyn McCord, who practices surgical skills and has very weird and increasingly violent psychosexual fantasies. Um, she also um, is... I would say quite delusional, actually. Um, Pauline, that, that's the character played by Annalyn McCord. She's got like aspirations of a career in medicine and really goes to extremes to also earn the approval of her controlling mother, played by Tracy Lords. Also, her little sister, uh, Grace, suffers from cystic fibrosis. Uh, I just want to say also, just to add that, you know, um, I, did you notice this week on Twitter that Annalyn McCord... <laughs> I was going to mention it at some point. <laughs> Annalyn McCord, you know, at once semi-famed for be for being on the remake of Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah. Now infamous for writing a poem for Vladimir Putin, <laughs> the like absolutely horrendous human being, mm. the the real life villain who is currently trying to usher in a new war well is waging yeah. war against the people of ukraine yeah. so uh, she you know i i to keep it light i like to remember that tweet where they say you know oh, the celebrities are <laughs> they're at it again yes and this is very much a gal gadot <laughs> rushing in all her celebrity pals to do a rendition of imagine mm-hmm why, Annalyn? <laughs> is what I want to ask. <laughs> I mean, I listen. I, I watched the video of her reciting this poem, and she bas- she's basically saying that if she were Vladimir Putin's mom, that she would have loved him so much that he wouldn't have felt the compulsion or the urge to be like a warmonger or mm-hmm. like a violent character. But the thing is, um, the way her delivery and <laughs> the format of the video is really like not proportionate to what's going on. And 
And she probably means well. I'm sure she has every good intention, but the outcome of it is very cringy and a bit like, for me, you know, as you know, I'm a Freudian. So as soon as someone's saying like, I wish I could be your mother, I'm like, oh, do you now? Like, you want to be Vladimir Putin's mommy, you know? Oh, oh, God, no. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Mary, the way I just pushed myself away from my desk and the microphone... (laughs) <laughs> oh my god oh dear <laughs> i'm never gonna get an invite back on the pod oh my, my lunch is like coming back up into my throat <laughs> i was not expecting that <laughs> you know when you talk about the abject that's my abject that that's sentence the abject. right there yes <laughs> my favorite part of that whole Twitter thing that she did was actually her response to people's mm. mockery was that she said that she kind of had villainous urges as well, or she could see herself becoming a great villain or a, or a dictator. <laughs> so she kind of empathized. Wow, that is so, that's kind of evolved. That's like kind of cool. I mean, not, none of it is okay, but none of it is okay. <laughs> I still have major concerns, you know, but at least like, it's kind of interesting that she would say something like that because Mm. she's almost like getting like existential philosophical about it. Whereas she could have easily just done the, you know, I I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe write like a, like a, like a phone app, like, you know, like the phone, like the, 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 um, the app note apology or something or, (laughs) or protect her tweets or send out like a publicist comment. I don't know. But she, I guess I'm just, cause I, when I think about her, for me, she's mm-hmm. very much fused with this character of Pauline and Exition. I think she's an amazing horror actress. Mm-hmm. So I, gu- I guess I couldn't really divorce that from when I watched her <laughs> poem because I mean, it, it, it almost sounded like it was Pauline reciting the poem. You know what I mean? I, absolutely. Because I was going to say the exact same thing. When she was delivering it, I was like, you are dead behind the eyes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am getting big sociopath vibes yeah. from you. <laughs> In this delivery. And I'm also, I was also thinking like, is this a form of sort of weird horror performance art where we're trying oh to, my God. because that is uh, in a way better than it being earnest and being Definitely. so incredibly tone deaf and cringy <laughs> and kind of borderline offensive too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what? I don't think Putin is the person we should be empathizing with right now. No, <laughs> I really don't think that. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that's so true you know who never does recordings of videos and poems to dictators <laughs> diane With keaton diane, diane keaton's not doing that shit <laughs> queen diane would never do that yeah you know who's like not bothering with that stuff martin scorsese he's like he's fine <laughs> you can help oh in other God. ways annalyn is what i'm saying <laughs> Like it's perfect timing for our episode. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're the only people actually benefiting from from that gaff because we can, we can we're using it as material. Everyone else is like plagued by this thing they've just watched. You know? I think it is very. It's very specific. She was when she popped up on on the news with that poem. <laughs> 
I I think of her. I actually think of her because of Excision and yeah. because of Nip Tuck, which is where I first saw her. Oh yeah, of course. And she also plays a sort of villainy type role in Nip Tuck. And Nip Tuck is actually an interesting, you know, show to think about because that's also a lot about body horror. It's mm. also a lot about surgery. It's about two plastic surgeons. Yeah, it's about this idea of kind of you know this all American beauty, but also about how people are controlling their bodies and this sort of like I mean the excess of that show are for a whole nother season <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely going kind of back to excision and and this this weird little independent movie uh that is both a horror movie and kind of a 18 weird girl movie that's not necessarily a, a subgenre but there is a sort of type of indie coming of age film that kind yeah. of centers the a high school weirdo so to speak so someone who is an outcast like you say who mm. just kind of lives in their own world and clashes with the world around them not just the adult world but the teen world as well and Paulina's the whole tone of the movie is very much that and Pauline is very much that as well so what do you make of her as as the kind of the protagonist weird, weird girl yeah, um, it, she's sort of mesmerizing, but in a, in a very abject way, for sure. So, um, when I say abject, obviously I'm directly making the reference to the Kristeva theory about abjection being that thing in horror that is, is very powerful and effective precisely because it resides somewhere between being a full subject, like a human being, mm -hmm. but like not quite a corpse, which is the object. So it's sort of like, <clears throat> it's sort of like lingering between the two states. So it's that loss of identity, the collapse of meaning for you and, and your, your body being like disgusting and like repulsive it provokes this feeling of like disgust. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Pauline is the perfect embodiment of that because she doesn't fit in anywhere. Um, She's sort of like, but she's also like not the type of outcast at a school where she lets herself necessarily be put down um, by by like her peers and her opponents at school, her adversaries. She sort of talks back, you know, like it's, it's really interesting. Like she has an answer for everything and she doesn't cower away from more powerful, popular people at her school. She sort of goes toe to toe with them, but at the same time, she is, there's no self care. There's no, um, you know, we see like the physical signs of, of her kind of deteriorating. Like her skin is in really bad way. She has really greasy hair. Um, so it, there's a lot going on with her. She, mm -hmm. she, she doesn't try actively to fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. She sort of wears her outcast badge as maybe a thing of pride. Mm -hmm. She doesn't necessarily want to integrate. She has like big ambitions, I feel mm -hmm. like. She feels, I think she, she emanates this energy like she's totally misunderstood. Her entire family seems to resent her. Um, like she contracted <laughs> something from her dad when he was like reviving her. Uh, when she almost drowned at a swimming pool um, and like she has like cold sores, you know, like it's in that's interesting to me, like all the little signs on her body that 
She doesn't fit in. Her mother is mm-hmm. very prim and proper, mm-hmm. which great casting there to have like someone who was very notorious as a porn performer, Tracy Lord, mm-hmm. play this uh, this mother who's extremely strict and conventional. But just going back to Pauline, I think she is, she's sort of, you know what it is, just to sum up, she's sort of like the, the, the summary, the sum of what a lot of girls in high school, I can only speak for myself, but kind of our worst fear of how we might be perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not put together, standing out, being a bit weird, acting a bit like bizarrely all the time. Um, but also having strange <laughs> bodily fetishes, like wanting to have sex on your period, you know, mm-hmm. she's sort of like really out there. And it's like she represents to me anyway, when I watch her as like, almost like the worst thing I ever want, the worst way I ever wanted to be perceived as being too different. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, I think you're you're kind of tapping into this thing of of when when you're a teenager in general, I think I don't think this just applies to girls or yeah. you know people who are, are growing up and being socialized as girls, but mm-hmm. I think there is this this constant contradiction of, you know, uh your body's oversexualized and and looked at there is a distinct point i think in every in every girl's life where you like go from being a kid to being kind of looked at differently and and you start to realize that you're being literally objectified by people who look at you and and at the same time all the things about your body that are changing or like bodily functions or you know i don't know like teenage things like acne or or, you know, like not knowing how to take care of your skin or your hair properly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those things are coded as very gross, unappealing, as bad. So like there's yeah. this endless laundry list of things that are wrong about your body starts appearing then. And it's kind of like, which boxes can I untick? What can I do to untick these boxes of being gross? And, and what's really weird and kind of off-putting about that kind of Pauline as a character taps into, I think, is the thing that she doesn't really care about the boxes. Mm. It's like she she has this acne on her skin. She's sort of she's made up to look very pasty and uh kind of very greasy skin, greasy hair. Like she almost looks like I don't know if you've seen this movie called The Greasy Strangler, but that sort mm. of very physical ickiness about some people like that has nothing to do with sort of physical attractiveness or anything like that is just about bodily stuff that we're all socialized to kind of hide and um you know and and smooth over as much as possible but then when you're shown it especially anything to do with kind of uh with female grossness it still is so kind of shocking because it is that abject feeling i think but a very specific one where you're kind of like there's nothing shocking about it because it's all just natural body functions right or whatever but you're drawn to it because we're not used to seeing gross women Mm -hmm. and at the same time you're repelled by it because we're taught from every single angle that you should absolutely absolutely never ever ever allow yourself to be gross and if you're gross you're gross in secret you're gross in secret in your house by yourself and even like within your house in a secret room where you can be gross (laughs) and no one can ever see you be gross it's that sort of thing and then you look at this character and you're like 
oh god you're just gross in public like are we allowed to do that (laughs) oh my god you nailed it that's exactly it but what do you think though about and i don't know how i feel about this annalyn mccord is a like traditionally very conventionally beautiful blonde thin white Mm -hmm. actress who's put in this role of this like very gross teenage girl this gross outcast what do you think about that contradiction of kind of taking someone who has the sort of physicality that would that you know has always been presented and even in her careers presented to us as well this is the norm this is what you should try to be and then put her yeah. in the complete opposite role. I think I think it's genius casting. Um because it's literally the kind of it's it's very subversive. Mm-hmm. It's very subversive because it's it's especially disquieting and disconcerting at a subconscious level when we have a performer that we typically remember as being very glamorous and conventionally attractive. Mm-hmm. It's especially disconcerting when we then see her presented to us like Pauline, be- precisely because of her natural star power and like her, her, her conventional beauty. It's the fact that those things can get warped just via makeup and special effects and stuff and then totally challenge our perceptions of her the way that she's being pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. And when that contrast occurs, I think it's even more, of, it packs more of a punch anyway for me as a viewer because you're like, you know what what this performer's potential could be aesthetically. And because she's presented like this, it feels like, I don't know if this is the effect the director was going for, but it feels somehow very radical, very subversive. I don't know. What do you think? I genuinely don't know because I yeah. think there's a part of me, and I think I only thought about this in the during Pauline's sex scene in particular, mm-hmm. where she's sort of fantasizing about being covered in blood and stuff, and then it turns out she's on her period. There is mm-hmm. that thing where she, I don't know if it was just different lighting or different makeup, but she looks so much more like Annalyn McCord mm-hmm. that it kind of took me out of the the appealing grossness of Pauline was like oh you're just you're just a, you know a regular you know all american beauty mm. and it felt a little bit off putting in yeah. a in a different way where it kind of took me out of the the intention of the story if that makes sense yeah 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 but yeah be, yeah mm-hmm. go on no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I was just reminded that also there is a very sharp difference between um, Pauline IRL in her day-to-day versus how she imagines herself mm-hmm. in her daydreams and, and nightly dreams. Um, these, you know, these like extended like sequences of like quite violent um, moments that she fantasizes about, mm-hmm. where in, within those situations, she is very glam and she's like... She, she has like a full face of glamorous makeup, beautifully styled hair, you know, um, conventionally stylish clothes, etc. So that's interesting as well. And, but, but it's all tied to violence. 
and, mm-hmm. and blood. Um, so I'm trying, that's something I still haven't figured out. It's, it seems quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that she would imagine herself like that. Is, is, is she, I mean, is that just a byproduct of her being a successful surgeon, which is what she's really after? She, mm-hmm. she aspires to be a medical professional. So th- does that then, does the kind of conventional physical beauty, is that just a byproduct of, you know, like a second, like a, like a side effect of her being more socially powerful or mm-hmm. like, I'm really trying to understand. Yeah. I like, as you're speaking, I'm also just thinking because mm-hmm. you know how they say that, um, and, and, uh, you know how they say that people who are, you know, perhaps diagnosable or undiagnosed psychopaths or sociopaths, although I know those are different things, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that can be sublimated into kind of good professions or uh, people are not inherently bad people because they have those tendencies yeah. uh, and very often they say that what CEOs are psychopaths and surgeons <laughs> and doctors uh, might be sociopaths or psychopaths as well because mm-hmm. of the tolerance for that stuff or even the interest in in the in you know surgery and and <laughs> the, the ability to to deal with bodies in that way and mm-hmm. I wonder kind of whether it's that in between, right? So there's this desire to tinker with human bodies to cut through them, but it's also going in a very, very negative, very dark direction because it's sort of un, it's unhinged. Yeah, there's no one kind of filtering that in a good direction. But mm. I also wonder if it's like a sexual thing because a lot of these have a sort of erotic tinge to them. Um, what do you think about the way that all of these body horror elements, you know, like the blood, like the nods to necrophilia, mm-hmm. the even the sex scene and, and Pauline's fantasies and ultimately what she does at the end? Like, how do you think that plays into the the horror, the body horror aspect of excision? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. For me, um, her fantasies are very eroticized. Um, I think because they tap into her extreme curiosity about her own body, mm-hmm. how it functions. Like, she has like a big preoccupation, for example, with STDs. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a re- regularly occurring thing, actually, in the, in the movie where at this school, the sex education seems to just be like, you're going to get an STD, you know, <laughs> like this is how to prevent your STD that you're going to get, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, 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 it's all very kind of scaremongering style of, um, sex education, which definitely like tracks with also back in the day when I was a kid, um, <laughs> the way that we were taught, taught about these things. Um, hopefully that's changing now, but, um, but yeah, I just, what I find interesting is that there is this whole, um, the, it sort of feeds into this wider pattern in the movie about pathology, about your life being very fragile and easily slipping away to disease. And, and her sister, like, is an example of that. She's just this young girl, you know, mm-hmm. and she has a very serious illness. She's already losing her young friends, her peers to this illness as well within that kind of, um, patient community. And, so it's like death and loss and disease and, and the pathology of the body 
it's just a bigger, wider pattern that plays out through the whole movie. So I feel like inevitably her, you know, Pauline's psychosexual development will absorb that kind of mood of, um, there being something quite warped, something not functioning, quote unquote, normally. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I mean, in a way, when she first said that she wanted her first sexual experience to be when she's on her period, I thought, I thought that was like, I mean, when you really stop to think about it, you know, um, in a way, that's actually a pretty smart decision because if it's your first time, uh, without getting into like the grisly details of it, but you know, um, you probably would want there to be, um, as much lube as possible. So if you're being smart about it, you're mm-hmm. going to do it while you're on, you're on your period and you're probably not going to have as much pain. If, if everyone involved is being considerate and to, an, to a degree asking, checking in on, on each other and like knowing what they're doing. But it just, it was such a kind of radical line in the script because it just flies in the face of, what you what you think what we're conditioned to think young people who are virgins think about mm-hmm. it just flies in the face of that so i feel like that just is like the tagline of this character and her her fantasy life and the fact that it is just blood soaked it's all mm-hmm. just blood soaked and every all of this stuff is eroticized like it turns her on mm-hmm. when and when i say turn her on i mean that i mean that psychoanalytically like there's the, the erotic aspect of her of it is in the psychoanalytic sense the thing that is animating her into action otherwise she's quite apathetic she's not that bothered about school um she doesn't seem to care about really belonging to a peer group she's totally like uh, you know Carol, you know she she mm-hmm. has no no interest whatsoever in the cotillion i mean who would really but <laughs> But, you know, like people try and reach out to her in sometimes ill-advised ways. Like she has to attend these meetings with like a religious leader, you know, played by John Waters. Perfect casting. Perfect casting. But she seems in all those areas of life quite apathetic, except for Mm -hmm. her her dedication to surgery, um, the body, her curiosity about the inner functions of the body. I think that's ultimately just a metaphor for her extreme curiosity about herself mm-hmm. that she just externalizes. But because it's not, it's not engaged with in a, in a sincere, authentic way by her, by her mother. I think the dad's pretty, he's sort of like laissez faire, but the mother is very critical. Mm-hmm. And I think she just is one of those kids that, probably just um probably spends a lot of time on the dark web <laughs> you know <laughs> and like meets a lot of questionable people out there and they just have a lot of quiet time and because they're so isolated they end up having some funny ideas no it's it's really interesting because i kind of do agree with your with your reading there that she is and I don't think it necessarily comes from an element of like she's just a horny teenager it's it's kind mm. of a it's kind of a vision of that in a way but made into horror where yeah. you're right she only really gets excited about things where it has this blood um element to it 
which is either, you know, you could interpret it as, as you know, this is uh, like a fetish that she doesn't, she can't <laughs> articulate as a fetish yet. Or, you know, considering the ending of the movie, more likely it's like there's a bloodlust there that she she's trying to pick at and trying to engage with in, in different ways. And some of those ways are going to be quite destructive. But I was wondering if we could talk about the her, well, the two things, like the way that Pauline engages with the adults in this movie, and mm. the casting of the adults is kind of amazing. You know, we've got Tracy Lords, John Waters pops up. There's Marley Mart Matlin who plays the guidance counselor. I think mm -hmm. there's Malcolm McDowell. The the people who, I mean, the cast is impressive, but it just Ray means Wise, yeah, Ray Wise. Like there's there's people who are there around her and they all kind of react very extremely to her too. Could yeah. <laughs> they do. I mean, I, um, I love that a lot of the people that you named, mm -hmm. uh, in particular, Malcolm McDowell, Tracy Lords, Ray Wise and John Waters. Mm -hmm. I feel those four to me have such strong, um, such a strong aura of like representing in my mind characters that are iconoclasts, mm -hmm. you know, um, and just kind of very rebellious and going against the grain, uh, with a big cult following as well, very celebrated, but like not main, not, not by the mainstream, you know? And so it, to put them in this movie, all of them basically in positions of authority over Pauline. Um, to, to, to almost like cast them very much against type where they are thorns in her side and trying to like, yeah, like I suppose they sort of stand in the way of something for her. I would say especially, um, especially John Waters and Tracy Lords. Mm -hmm. Um, the other two, the, the uh, her teacher, Michael McDowell and the, and the, and, and I think he's, is he the principal, Ray Wise? Yeah. I mean, they, first of all, Ray Wise is so, I, he's perfect in this movie. I, every time he appears to me, he's just uncanny. Mm -hmm. I can't now not see like Laura Palmer's dad <laughs> from Twin Peaks. So the fact that he is like, it's 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 like an interesting meta reference there of like maybe a creepy guy you know being your school principal mm -hmm. um and then yeah i suppose it's just a lot of um encounters where it's always this kind of battle for position and pauline is very I think she doesn't feel any support from these, from any of these adults. The only one that seems marginally on her side is maybe her dad. And he was the one that also revived her, you know, mm -hmm. he, he breathed the breath of life back into her. So he's more of the life force in her life, I suppose, but he's so quiet and disengaged that he doesn't have that, that heroic energy that it takes to like really be an ally for her. But ultimately I just, keep seeing this pattern of opposition, frustration, and j all of them just contributing to a feeling of it's just pulling against the world. But is it 
is it really her against the world? Or is it her against the world, but in the sense that she actively antagonizes everyone around her? (laughs) Well, this is it. This is the question. I feel like so much of the movie is just Mm. told from her perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's all very black and white. The way that she perceives these people is just from her standpoint. So they're just like um, very one-dimensional type characters. Mm. Because from her from from where she stands, from her vantage point, she's in the right and everyone's opposed to her. It's all fitting into her own kind of maybe delusional narrative, I would say. Outside of that, um, I'm sure it's much more, uh, much more like complex and ambiguous mm-hmm. and ambivalent. It's just that she is so, uh, she, she, she's got like, I don't want to, I, I don't know exactly what, I would diagnose her with, if anything, but I do feel like when the mom said she was delusional, Mm -hmm. it's a, I feel like it's, she's, she's quite like on the border of psychosis. Mm -hmm. So within her frame of mind, um, all of these people are her enemies. She's, it's like a sort of almost like a paranoiac delusional, um, psychosis, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I wonder how, how do you think kind of her, because we get a lot of these cutaways to her conversations, not prayers, conversations with God, uh, <laughs> the biblical idea of God. Kind of, what do you make of those? And how do you think they kind of play into this, um, into Pauline's descent, I guess, into what she ultimately does? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, it's in a way it's a it's an unex- unexpected feature of the film to me because mm-hmm. the fact that she seems to invest her time in checking in with god and updating god about what she's been up to and sometimes we, we can see that she has remorse for something she's done um like having sex you know mm-hmm. i kind of think that may it, it perhaps indicates a level of guilt in her for things that maybe she doesn't feel very proud of or maybe she feels shame mm-hmm. um but at the same time i think that it's like a sign of i, I also i'll just add that you know if she if she a lot of scientists are atheists so it's mm-hmm. kind of like a unique thing to to see someone who wants to be a surgeon but who also has faith in god um it's interesting to me you know mm-hmm. um but I just see those moments in the, in the film as a rather tragic state of affairs because she really has no one else to turn to. It's like she feels that, um, these, 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 I guess what she thinks is a dialogue, but ultimately it's just an inner monologue she's having with herself. Mm-hmm. She just feels like she needs to articulate something about her life. Um, to someone that's not going to judge her. And, and if God is just this void that she can just imagine and have faith that there's something there, mm. um, there's no risk of just getting cut down the way that maybe she feels elsewhere. What did, what did you think? Well, I kind of wondered whether there was, it was just another way of her to actively antagonize every single aspect of authority that was around her she didn't antagonize her mom uh she didn't antagonize uh, everyone at her school the teenage girls as well she would kind of actively you know 
prick them yeah. and also create conflict in a way that is kind of you know is is kind of great because it's the weird girl not putting up with any of the popular girl shit mm. but then i thought i thought that the god element is also a very teenagey thing you know when you're a teenager and you if you experience any sort of crisis of faith or even an interest in faith then you might kind of explore it but not in necessarily in an earnest way and i think that 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 aspect of it was also a very teenagey thing mm-hmm. of i'm i'm going to have this conversation but i don't really believe in you but i'm talking to you uh, and yeah. i'm you know i'm not going to read the bible because it's had some mixed reviews and i'm not going <laughs> to dedicate my time to something that's had that many mixed reviews if you know what i mean <laughs> and it's like this sort of you know hoity toity conversation um but I think it was, you know, stylistically, I thought it was just a way for us to, instead of getting a, a voiceover, mm-hmm. we're getting her conversations with God. And at the same time, you know, you could start arguing, maybe that's, uh, you know, in the future, maybe that's kind of what's the sort of fan- fantasy that's going on in her head. And she's not actually having these conversations. Yeah. It's just a way for her to articulate it with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to think that too. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's just some, it's, it's just like one l- small way that you can vocalize mm-hmm. a lot of complex feelings. And I, and I have to ask you kind of before we move into warm bodies, what did you make mm. of the, of the ending? Oh my God. It's devastating. I mean, before we started recording, I was telling you that this film really creeps me out. Like it's, I've seen so many horror movies. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you can relate. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that easy to bother anymore. Like I am so, I am so desensitized, man. Like you know, <laughs> I've seen it all. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I want to say this while I'm like dragging on a cigarette, you know, mm-hmm. but this one, this really, really scared me because of the ending. Because I feel like the the tone of the movie is almost bordering on horror comedy a lot of the time and like a satire or something or just something very ironic. Mm. But then, so you, so you get accustomed as a viewer within the realm of this movie to kind of expect something not quite so serious, whatever. It's all jokes, you know? And then it just leads up to this like tragic moment where, can we get spoilerific here? Yeah, we're absolutely spoilerific. Okay, good. So when she kidnaps, uh, or she like lures the sort of like front neighbor over and chloroforms her, chloroforms her sister and performs open surgery on both of them to, mm-hmm. and in a bid to, to like cure her sister's disease by like exchanging organs. And like, and she's also shaved her, her head at this point. Yeah. Just, just to kind of add to the like scary factor. It's very effective. And then, but what really, really like to, to my core bothered me was like bothered in a, I say this like with, the, with the utmost affection for the horror genre in a sense to say that it really like scared the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a good thing, which is what we want. It's when her mom walks in. Mm-hmm. and realizes what the hell is going on and then Pauline comes over and she's like it's this particular line that like gave me the heebie-jeebies she goes you gotta come over and see it she's extraordinary like that oh my god it just it really scared me because like she's so in at this point she's so delusional 
she has no idea that they're both dead and that like what the hell like what has she just done and Tracy Lord's like eyes well up and they both cry and scream and I found that so upsetting it's so nightmarish Hmm. I mean I think that it's so it gets really scary right at the final moment of the film kind of the whole rest of it is very much in that sort of welcome to the dollhouse uh john waters realm right and then it gets you know to put it bluntly like shit gets real like she really kills two people and it's such a stark ending as well where i kind of almost wish like we saw more but i don't because i think it, it works really well as that ending mm-hmm. and it's the element that i always forget about like when i first watched this movie i didn't remember um remember this ending that much mm-hmm. and and then i remember oh shit this is a complete change of tone from the rest of the movie and it does get really affecting because i think she seems so much like a teenage girl yeah. In that moment? Yeah. You're right. Like, she finally kind of, in a way, is for the first time really vulnerable because the rest of the time she's got this tough girl act on and, like, she doesn't, like, she feel she seems so jaded and cynical right up until that moment. And now suddenly she just seems extremely fragile and suddenly realizing what she's done. And, um... I don't know. It just plays also into a fear of mine that I have. It's totally irrational, but it's like this fear that what if like, I think I know what I'm doing, Mm. but like no one else agrees, but they're too polite to tell me. And then one day I'm going to do something that is so awful and it'll just be irreversible. And I've like ruined everyone. Like, (laughs) Oh my God. I know it's so it's it's so catastrophic and like irrational, but, but it the, really plays. But that's <laughs> really what teenagers plays, yeah. think, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's a very good insight into the teenage mindset mm-hmm. of like the, the outside world being your enemy, and you're it's you against the world, and they're all so black and white, so unidimensional, and they just they they just don't know anything about you. You're so misunderstood, and then. But then again, it's like catastrophizing. If you make a mistake, it's the end of the world. Yeah. Actually, now that I'm talking about it with you, I feel like I'm working through my fear. So oh, good. good. It's really helping me process this trauma from the film. It's podcast therapy. That's what totally. we're here for. <laughs> so shall we move on to Let's move on. a much less, I guess, well, maybe, I don't know. Now I'm thinking maybe it is also traumatic in a different way. <laughs> but let's move on to Warm Bodies from yeah. the following year, 2013. And and same same question to you. Can you kind of briefly set the scene of what Warm Bodies deals with? Yeah, sure. So uh, the film focuses on basically the relationship between Julie, um, who's like, a young woman, a human, <laughs> and um, a, a character called R, simply R, who is a zombie. And he can't remember his name from before when he was a human. So he goes by R. And the, sh- the film sort of shows their eventual romance. And this is what seems to cause R to slowly return from zombie to human form. And also what's interesting about the movie is that it really like displays 
human characteristics of zombie characters, which is quite rare. It's sort of shown from a zombie's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And I think that's kind of the the best thing about worm bodies for me. Yeah, me too. So so who is our our lead zombie? Our uh played by Nick Holt, Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt. Oh my goodness. <laughs> of Skins season one fame. Yes. <laughs> Best reference for him. <laughs> That's what I think about him whenever I see Nicholas Holt. I know he's in the grade. I know he was in About Boy and all that stuff. No, Skins, he's Tony from Skins season one. <laughs> I agree. And actually, I just remembered that he, I think he was also in A Single Man. Was he? I think so. I do not um, remember that at all. <laughs> I, I I feel like he was, yeah, he was one of, I just remember him in like very cool 60s clothes. He was like one of the students, Um, but he had a very small role in that. I believe um, you, even though I don't I, remember him. <laughs> So you mentioned at the start of our chat that you're always really drawn to like zombie things and kind of the yeah. more um bodily side of horror. Kind of where do you think warm bodies, which has been described and it's kind of basically Romeo and Juliet, but with zombies, mm-hmm. how do you think it sits with it that in between the the zombie subgenre and and the rom com, I guess, and the kind of the coming of age film as well? Yeah. Um I was immediately drawn to this film on your list because, well, first of all, zombie movies to me are always fascinating psychologically because the zombie is such a psychoanalytic trope to me. Like Mm. something that is um, undead, you know, so unfinished business, but is stuck, like is very much in a state of purgatorial hell, Um, this limbo state of like wandering around not resolving anything it's just every day is a repetition every day looks the same it's like a groundhog day existence Mm -hmm. so it's like this pathological repetition unable to move on unable to resolve but ultimately feeling a great sense of loss so to me the zombie trope is a great signifier for actually depression or some kind of melancholia where at the heart of it, you feel a great sense of loss and mm-hmm. mourning, but you can't move on from that. So wherein like excision is much more about like psychosis, delusion, paranoia. I feel like for me, warm bodies is entering into this world, this metaphor where the realm of the zombies is really just a kind of like category of mental illness of people who are depressed who might become destructive, you Mm -hmm. know, to themselves and others. And so they have to kind of be ostracized by society and, and fended off, like fended away and, and kept at bay, like kept behind the wall, this taboo subject of these depressed people. And to me, it, you know, that loss is worn on the body, you know, the way that Mm -hmm. they look. And like when, when R ingests the brain of, you know, Julie's boyfriend, Mm -hmm. um, he starts to gain an insight into a life, a human life, and starts to like, become really curious about this, this guy and his relationship with Julie, and he starts to develop feelings for her. So more and more, 
it's through his love for her that he is sort of uh, revived. Like he's exhumed. That's a great word that they use in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's very powerful. To me, it's just a great metaphor for um, a, a kind of love that brings you back to life because the person is willing to like fight alongside you and accepts you and accepts your pathology. And what I find very interesting about kind of comparing it a bit to what we were talking about with excision the i mean the zombie is not an appealing you know Mm. type of creature the thing where we're kind of meant to be grossed out by the zombie that's very deliberate but here it kind of plays in reverse right because nick holt's character even while he's a corpse and he calls himself a corpse a lot in the film in his you know internal monologue he's still meant to be sort of attractive slash appealing to (laughs) us so that we believably can start to see him and Teresa palmer kind of start falling in love kind of and i think this is interesting in opposition to pauline from excision who you know very much alive but is made to be as unappealing and and off-putting and gross as possible. Kind of what do you make about the way that the zombies here are made to be like physically not as say gross as, as they would perhaps traditionally be? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way of putting it where it's, it's a nice way to disarm the audience that's coming in from probably many other zombie movies where We've always been told that these these creatures are repulsive, they're brain dead, you know, uh, they don't feel anything, they just repeat the same action mindlessly. They're pretty stupid, you know? <laughs> so we're we're coming in with all this baggage and suddenly we're disarmed by a a zombie who has complex feelings and longs mm-hmm. to articulate them. Mm-hmm. And even has a friend, even though they just initially just grunt at each other, you know, and the the fact that the, you know, R, as you rightly point out, is cast, um, you know, is ha- is basically like portrayed by an actor who is conventionally attractive. So even underneath all the special effects of makeup that's trying to make him look undead, mm-hmm. you can still see he's got an amazing bone structure. <laughs> Those cheekbones could, yeah. Cheekbones for days. Cheekbones for days that can cut diamonds. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, like that jawline, like, yes. I'm here for the jawline. Only on the Final Girls podcast are we going to be thirsting after a zombie. (laughs) This is is what's going to (laughs) happen. This is why I've never done a zombie season. Yeah, that's what it makes. That, but you're right. But you're so right. That's what it makes it so unique in this movie is that through these little ways of like disarming us, mm-hmm. we're kind of brought onto his side. And the fact that he, you know, has a cozy little space on that like abandoned airplane and he's playing vinyl records, like I kind of want to be there. You know, I want to listen to like Guns and Roses. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's all very intimate, you know? (laughs) I know this is not the point of the movie, but you just made me think of, you know, this meme? Well, there's many memes of this ilk that go around the internet where, you know, like uh, if uh, a straight straight man takes you to his apartment or his room and it's just like a (laughs) record's 
and uh, a dingy mattress on the floor and like one <laughs> one flat pillow. <laughs> That's his room. <laughs> That's his room. Oh my god. That's his You're little right. nook. <laughs> and he's a corpse. And he's a corpse to add up to add to everything else. I mean That's hilarious. I'm kind of now, I enjoy this movie. I think it's really cute, but now I'm questioning it because I'm like, I think <laughs> this is sending us the wrong message. <laughs> the bar is so low, he doesn't even need to be alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no pulse, no problem. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's got great taste in music. Is he alive? No, it's not. It's, we can work on that. I can change him. <laughs> Oh my god, and I imagine if he's one of those guys who goes to gigs and sees women wearing like band t-shirts and tells them like, so name me three Neil Young songs, you know? I hope he's not that kind of music purist, you know? <laughs> you know what? Maybe he was that guy when he was alive. We will yes. never know. Because he doesn't even remember his know. name. <laughs> this is how he's getting rehabilitated. <laughs> Oh, dear. I think we've just destroyed this movie. <laughs> the entire <laughs> innocent appeal of it. <laughs> Amazing. I just got to say also, huge love for Teresa Palmer. Mm -hmm. I feel like she, I've loved her in everything I've seen her in, especially Berlin Syndrome. Oh, God. Yeah, that's a fucked up movie that I'll talk about someday. Yeah, really. But she's, an, I think she's like Aussie, isn't she? Yeah, I think so. She's another one of these like, Australian actors in a very long line of incredible talent coming from Australia. Like, it's just mm. like, what is in the water out there? They're all so great. <laughs> they really, really are. I mean, yeah. Also, that is an intense movie. Intense. Very yeah. intense. But yeah. yeah, what do you think of the, mm. um, I guess, you know, R and, and Nick Holt and kind of the get the juicier role in the sense because they have to, play the zombie but also get a, a more regular uh voiceover so we get to hear their internal monologue kind of what do you make about his his performance on a on a whole i really liked it i didn't expect to at all mm -hmm. um because i kind of went into it when i first saw it like a few years ago a bit skeptical i'm like mm, i don't know like not sure that the tropes you know the world's the 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 tropes colliding in the way that they do. I don't think it's going to work for me, but it actually kind of, it kind of worked in the sense that, um, just because I felt a lot of sincerity from, um, Nick Holt mm -hmm. and it, I really did like the concept of it. And mm -hmm. I felt it was very topographically interesting because, because mainly because it was also this addition of, the so-called bonies, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this other kind of group in this underworld of zombies where it's sort of, it's like a layer of death even below zombies. And they're made out to be these like very scary mm -hmm. creatures. But ultimately when the zombie community um, starts to like heal and uh -huh. restore itself and come back to life, they basically unite with the humans to fight these bonies. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought that that worked very well within the theory that maybe all of this is a reaction against 
depression, you know, and that particular mental illness to do with like loss and self-harm and self-destruction and stuff and how we deal with that, that, that even in the underworld, you know, the, the people affected by this, they may, they may be outcast and may, they may have to live in an isolated state, but they still have to contend with these bonies, like the, mm-hmm. the real kind of, uh, symbol of death, which is just a skeleton. Yeah. And they, and also they get to like see what they will end up as. So they yeah. kind of have a very direct, uh, you know, ending that they can see in fear as opposed to, you know, when, you know, we all go through life kind of knowing that we will inevitably die, not to get too existential on this podcast, but, um, <laughs> You kind of like, you know, you don't have any knowledge of what that's going to be like. Not no. really, not personally. Whereas I think in, in this movie, you, you know, obviously this is not the tone of warm bodies at all, but they get to walk around kind of being dead, but also there is something beyond the death that they're experiencing that they also can see and kind of know exactly what they don't want to be. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. They get, they get this very terrifying vision of what can ultimately happen to them. Mm-hmm. Which mm. is messed up. Like, imagine if you were walking around and you could see, you could see what was on the other side of you dying. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah, I wouldn't <gasps> want to know. <laughs> well, I've put a damper in the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's so true. It's so true. But in a way, that's what those people end up getting preoccupied by this mm. this vision this dark vision and and the humans who walled themselves inside you know um, yeah. their fortress they think that they're totally immune to this state because they physically remove themselves mm-hmm. but um but in a way they're yeah i suppose it is very existential because everyone has to ultimately confront their mortality you know um mm-hmm. I love the human aspect of the film where Julie's the one that is quite fearless and is curious about what's going on out there and is open enough in her mind and heart that she can approach the humanity of what it, one of these scary creatures. Yeah. But yeah. then you will also get Julie's dad, played by John Malkovich, mm. who literally builds a a fortress to protect everyone and is just completely you know incapable of seeing that he's seeing a real life kind of reversal of death in front of his eyes yeah yeah you're so right like when he he needs to really be convinced to open up to that possibility because he is so guarded and well defended against any sign of danger um, that he, if he were not reminded, he would just miss out on something really extraordinary transforming in front of him. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's actually pretty deep. Like it goes really, really deep. And I really like the soundtrack in this movie. Yeah. It's very, it's actually like the soundtrack of a light romantic comedy in a way. Yeah. It really is. And there's all these little montages of, them on the plane hanging out and then and then Nick Holt getting his makeover you know (laughs) (laughs) which I gotta say I'm a big fan of men in makeup so I was like yes finally let's see a guy getting a makeover you know yeah into it 
And also, you're going to enjoy the great because he has a lot of very good makeup in that show. Oh, yes. Yes. And he says huzzah a lot, which is also excellent. (laughs) I mean, you're really selling it to me, by the way. Like, seriously. All he does, I don't know if you've heard anything about the great, not not to make a complete, I mean, this is a huge tangent, but it's about the, it's a sort of, um, uh, about the the early years of Catherine the Great, and he plays the emperor of of Russia, and he's mm-hmm. very thick, but he's very horny. So all he does is talk about sex and sex huzzah, and nobody can contradict him because he's the emperor, and he will kill them. Uh- <laughs> oh my god, that <laughs> sounds wild. <laughs> Mary, before we wrap up. Mm. Is there anything about warm bodies or excision that you wanted to to say that perhaps we haven't really touched on in our conversation? I feel like we've covered it. I feel like we've covered it. It's just, I feel like one final note maybe is it is interesting that in both movies, there is a very strong oppositional parent, you know, mm-hmm. a very sort of like, tyrannical maybe very authoritarian style parenting in tracy lords and john malkovich mm-hmm. but then in relation to that the, the 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 vastly different approaches of coping with that you know where one ends in abject tragedy and the other actually has quite a hopeful possibility at the end you know um but i recommend both Maybe finish with warm bodies. I feel like it's a much lighter note. <laughs> it's a good one to end on because it's very, it's very hopeful. Whether excision is, is more like, well, a straight up punch to the gut, really, yeah. or like a stab to the gut because it's a very stab. stabby. <laughs> oh yeah, like definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah, really effective, very effective. So, Mary, thank you so much for your time and for your insight into these. And I'm glad we worked through some of your your own fears through our talk of excision. Um, and where can people find more of your work online? Thank you so much for having me once again. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you can just follow me at Psychstar. That's P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R on Twitter and Instagram, where I announce courses I'm teaching, podcasts, stuff I'm doing, and also details of my Patreon solo project. It's all on there. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you.